Well, it is a week after Easter, and we are still living in the joy of the resurrection. He is risen, indeed. Hallelujah. But in the midst of our Easter joy, I have a question. Can we still believe in the resurrection if we weren't there? Over the past few years, a number of Christian celebrities have announced that they've left the faith. Musicians, pastors, authors, some no longer believe in God at all, and they've been deconstructing. Their childhood beliefs and assumptions about God no longer work for them. Others aren't giving up on God entirely, but they're disillusioned with the church. Failures of leadership, abuses of power, Me Too, Church Too, toxic Christianity, Christian nationalism. Some have been told that they just don't belong at church anymore. Others just don't feel at home. Research reports that today's young adults, younger millennials and Gen Z have less religious belief and church engagement than previous generations. But CT Christianity Today recently reported that even Gen Xers and boomers have also been leaving church since the pandemic. And I see this among my own friends. Gen Xers that used to have vibrant Christian faith and ministry, they're walking away from God or Christianity for various reasons. A lot of people are deconstructing or disillusioned. So this Easter season, I'm wondering, can we still believe in the resurrection in an age of deconstruction? Where is the good news for the disillusioned and doubting? Today's passage is about Thomas, and we mostly know him as Doubting Thomas. And that's his claim to fame. And the poor guy, he probably had other personality traits, <laughs> you know, other distinctives. But because of this one passage, that's what he's known as, Doubting Thomas. A, a few weeks ago, I was on a plane, and the in-flight magazine had an interview with actor-director Kenneth Branagh. Uh, he just did uh, Death on the Nile. He did uh, a few other things. Uh, we, but one of the questions was, which historical figure do you identify with? And Branagh said, Doubting Thomas. That's interesting. And Russell Moore had an article in CT that mentioned another passage with Thomas, John 14, where Jesus said, you know the way uh, to the place where I'm going. And Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so there he is again, questioning, wondering. Thomas represents all of us who doubt or question. But doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt can be a doorway into faith. And we don't have to have certainty to believe. I was helped a few years ago by a book by philosopher Esther Lightcap Meek called Longing to Know. And she made a distinction between certainty and confidence. And she said, we can't have certainty about almost anything in life. There is just, there's just not an empirical way to have certainty. But we can have a proper confidence. That's something that's true. And confidence is sufficient. How do we have confidence in the reality of Jesus? A few years ago, when I was a grad student at Wheaton, I went to the annual Wheaton Theology Conference. And the theme that year was a dialogue between evangelicalism and post-liberalism. And I went to a session on about uh, a historical dialogue between evangelical Carl Henry and post-liberal Hans Frey. They had had a debate back in the 1980s at Yale and Henry had pressed Fry about the authority of scripture, saying evangelicals believe in the inspiration of scripture because it's historically verifiable, it's factual. And Fry responded something along the lines of, don't you see what you're doing here? And I'm paraphrasing. If, if you believe in scripture because it's historically verifiable and factual, then you are elevating 
criteria like historicity and verifiability over the authority of Scripture itself. You don't really believe that Scripture is the ultimate authority because you appeal to a higher authority of things like history and archaeological evidence to prove Scripture. And that's a very modernist view of Scripture. It's beholden to the laws of reason and historicity. It's not really as evangelical as evangelicals think it is. So Hans Frey said, it's actually more faithful to talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Fry talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient on its own. It's true not because we appeal to an external authority like historicity or archaeological reliability. Scripture is self-authenticating. Self it has its own authority. And for those of us in the Anglican tradition, Scripture is authoritative and true because it is our story, the text of us as a people, that we as a Christian community have accepted the testimony of those who have come before us. We have found them reliable. We deem their testimony trustworthy. We believe in this narrative not because of a prior commitment to inerrancy or historical verifiability, but because this is our story. He has spoken through the apostles and the prophets. We are the people of this book, and the story of Jesus makes sense of our lives. It so happens that scripture is generally reliable and trustworthy from the standpoint of history and textual criticism. There's more textual evidence for the New Testament than there is for Plato or Homer, but our faith doesn't depend on that. Our faith has been handed down to us, and we are part of the community that has experienced the sufficiency and truth of scripture. It is both objectively, historically true, as well as subjectively and experientially true for us as God's people. Now this passage leads up to Thomas, but it begins with the rest of the disciples. That first Easter evening, Jesus appeared to the community of the disciples. And in that community, they could look around the room and confirm with each other, this is not a hallucination. This is not a delusion, it's not just me. You're seeing him too, right? And Peter nods at James, and Mary says, I see, I told you I saw him this morning. He's right here in the context of community. They confirm together the reality and trustworthiness of the event. Jesus really rose from the dead. We all saw him. We can give testimony together. But Thomas wasn't in the room where it happened. So he doesn't have the same plausibility structures as the others. And we're not sure why he wasn't there. Maybe he was grieving Jesus' death in his own way. He had spent three years with Jesus, and his death would have been a crushing loss. Experiencing trauma, maybe he needed space for his own grief. Whatever the case, he's suspicious when the others say, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. So maybe Thomas was an evidentialist, logical-minded, an S on the Myers-Briggs, trusting observable data. Show me, show me the proof. Give me the evidence. And this could be a defense mechanism on his part to protect himself from further pain. Don't, don't get my hopes up, guys. Uh, don't crush me again. I'm going to hold you at arm's length with criteria to protect myself from getting my hopes dashed. That next week, Thomas is there with the rest. And maybe the others pulled him there against his will. Come on, just show up, see what happens. But I'd like to think that Thomas, at least part of him, wanted to be there. He's curious. Maybe he's feel, feeling like he missed out 
and he wants to have the experience that the rest of the community had, hoping against hope that they weren't pulling his leg, that it was real, that he can see Jesus again too. And he does. Jesus shows up. Peace be with you. Shalom. And he addresses Thomas directly. See my hands. Touch my side. It's for real. I'm here. The others aren't messing with you. I'm not messing with you. It's okay. You don't have to worry about being deceived. You can believe now. Jesus doesn't just prove himself to Thomas with evidence, though he does. He meets him where he's at. He answers the questions he's asking. He's speaking his language. And he gives Thomas the experience of the community. The others had all been there and shared that experience. Now Thomas has both the community validation and the experiential reality of the resurrection. Jesus gives Thomas the same experience as the others because that's sufficient and that's enough for faith. And how does Thomas respond? He says, my Lord and my God. One of my college professors pointed out that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at the end of the Gospel, Thomas proclaims that this Word is not just an abstract, impersonal God, but a personal, relational God. My Lord and my God. That's the trajectory of Scripture. The story arc of our lives, from the Word was God, the, my Lord and my God. Jesus is God, but that's not all. He's my God. He's our God. And this is where preachers usually ask us to put ourselves in Thomas' shoes. Are you like Thomas? You know, what are your doubts about God? Jesus comes to you to reassure you just like he did with Thomas. And that's all well and good, but that's not the application I want to take from this passage. Uh, we sometimes ask, where are you in the passage? Who do you identify with? Are you Thomas? Are you one of the other disciples? But we don't have to do that with this passage. We don't have to be Thomas. Why? Because we are in this passage. This might be the only place where Jesus specifically names us as characters in the story. Verse 29, because you, Thomas, have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, those who have not seen. We are in this passage. We're in the story. We were not there that night. We did not see Jesus with our own eyes. We did not touch his hands or side. But Jesus has written us into the story. Blessed are us, those of us who have not seen and yet have believed. Sometimes we take this as an obligation. You haven't seen, but you should believe. And we feel like we need to crank up our faith to believe. But that's not the force of the sentence. Jesus isn't saying, you better believe, sight unseen, and shame on you if you don't. No. It's not a statement of obligation. It's a blessing. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. One interpretive principle of Bible study I like is to receive scripture in the ways it was originally de de delivered and not to turn it into things that they aren't. If a passage is a narrative or a parable, let it unfold as a story. Don't turn it into a command. Some sections are indeed commands, and you should receive them as thou shalt not, or do this or that, fear not, be not afraid. But things like the Beatitudes were delivered as blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Receive them as blessings. And that's the blessing 
Jesus gives here. Blessed are you who have not seen and believe. It's a blessing. It's an invitation. It's saying, you don't have to be here in A.D. 33 to personally witness the resurrection appearances to be a follower of Jesus. That's a blessing. That's a relief. Jesus blesses us who were not there by writing us into the story. He welcomes us into the community, and he gives us the gift of being part of the story. We are not alone on the outside. We have been welcomed in. In this one sentence, Jesus has increased the population of the room beyond the 11 or the few dozen that were there to millions and billions who were not there, who have not seen but yet believe. He has thrown open the gates of heaven. This is not just a private, tiny experience for a few elect first century Palestinians. It's widening the circle beyond anything previously imagined in human history for every tribe and tongue and nation. Blessed are you and you and you too and all of you. Think of the Apostle John's own context as the writer of this gospel. He wrote this in about 90 AD, about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And John is the last of the original disciples left alive. Everyone else is gone. Peter, James, Mary, Paul. John was probably the youngest of the disciples. He might have been a teenager when he started to follow Jesus. And now he's an old man. And the Christians are now wondering, you know, they're a generation or two removed from the earthly ministry of Jesus. They no longer have parents or grandparents who saw him heal the sick, walk on water, feed 5,000. It's after the fall of Jerusalem, a time when Rome has scattered and persecuted the church. So the followers of Jesus in 90 AD may be wondering, was all this really real? Can we believe in Jesus the way that first generation did when we weren't there? And John recalls what Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And John realizes this is a word for the generations who came after those first disciples. He knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't write it in their gospels. So John is intentional and he extends Jesus' blessing from Thomas and those first disciples to the generations afterward. Blessed are you who weren't there. Blessed are you. You're part of the story too. And that brings us to some of my favorite verses in all of scripture. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There's lots more that could have been written that wasn't written, not in this book, not in any book, but these are written that you may believe, and that's enough. These are sufficient. These are written that you may believe, and that's all you need to have life in this name. That's a revolutionary, radical statement. These are written that you may believe. The Apostle John is proclaiming that the written word has the capacity to elicit faith. He has written these words, this gospel, this book, and someone can read those words, this pen on papyrus, and those written words can bring belief and eternal life. It's one of my favorite verses because I'm an editor at a Christian book publishing house, and I have the joy of working with authors to help their ideas and words become manuscripts and books. And those published books change people's lives. These are written that you may believe. You can pr pick up a printed text and read words on a page and from that reading experience have belief in Jesus and eternal life. 
And that's a radical contrast to the, mission, uh, the mystery religions of the time. You didn't need to have some secret Gnostic religious experience. You didn't need to be initiated in a temple ceremony or to be part of a particular bloodline or family lineage. These are written so you can believe. You can read these words or hear these words read to you, and that's enough. That's all you need. You didn't need to be in the room where it happened. John is saying that testimony is sufficient for faith and belief. So think of a passage of scripture that you've read that's changed you. You John 3.16 or Psalm 23 or a book that you've read that spoke to you and opened you up to God in new ways. For me, uh, the last battle, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, that was a life-changing book for me. Uh, And books by John Stott, Jerry Packer, Dallas Willard, Julian Norwich, Henry Nowen. My PhD dissertation was looking at transformative book reading experiences among emerging adults. And it was fascinating to hear people talk about the books that changed their lives. The Cost of Discipleship, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Blue Like Jazz, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And I love that our congregation draws deeply on the written word. Father Kevin quotes A.W. Tozer <laughs> in his sermons. And Mother Linda talks about stories from Cory Ten Boom. And we've had book groups t- discussing Quite Awake by Daniel Hill or Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Warren. And all of these have fed us and nurtured our community and helped us believe. They've been written so that we may believe and have life. So it's a word for writers and book publishers, but it's also for educators, professors, students, everyone who teaches and learns from a textbook, anyone who passes knowledge and wisdom along from one generation to another. Journalists and reporters, all who write to bring truth to life. Pastors and preachers, Bible teachers, small groups, anyone who comes around the words of scripture to wrestle with God's word in our lives. Every book group that discusses a meaningful passage, every parent that reads a Bible storybook to the kids, all of these work through what has been written so that we may believe. And it's significant that belief is framed in communal terms here. Blessed are those, plural, who have not seen but believe. These have been written that you, plural, may believe, and that by believing, you, plural, may have life. It's not an individualistic American belief where we, as individuals, have to try to decide for ourselves what we believe or not. It's a communal, corporate, shared belief where we together enter into the beliefs that we hold to be true. One of my professors at Wheaton was Bob Weber, and he talked about how when we're not sure if we can believe this or that aspect of Christianity, that's okay, because the church believes on our behalf. That's why the creeds are written in plural form. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, only Son of God. There are, I believe, versions, but for congregational use, we say we believe because it's not a matter of us individually cranking up enough faith to say we believe each line. We say we believe because this is the body of belief that we enter into together. It holds us together, this we believe. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we're part of the community that believes these things. And I don't know about you, but that takes some of the pressure off. I don't have to be anxious about having all my theological ducks in a row. I don't have to try to explain the Trinity or infralapsarianism or whatever. I can rest in the reassurance that the community we belong to has held these beliefs about this God, the resurrection of this Jesus since the apostles and the prophets. And that's what makes us who we are.
And we don't just believe in some abstract sense of mentally agreeing with doctrinal belief statements. These are written that we may believe and have life in his name. That's the end goal, the vision. Not just people who have belief, but people who have life. Belief in Jesus makes us alive. It restores us to life when we have been dead. Jesus raises us from any number of deaths. The death of dreams, the death of loved ones, the death of relationships or jobs or health. This Jesus stands in solidarity with us in our deaths because he has been there. He has experienced death. And death could not hold him. Death does not have the final word because Jesus is the final word. The word made flesh. The word of life. And this word comes to us in the flesh to raise us as well. Touch my hands, feel the wound in my side. I am with you, I have come back for you, and I am here to give you life. Those are the Easter gifts of Jesus. Faith, hope, resurrection, new life. So how do we respond? For the doubting and disillusioned, for the deconstructing, the response is not just stop doubting or stop deconstructing. I'd like to frame this with three R words. First, receive. Receive the gift that Jesus offers. Receive his appearance. Receive his presence. Receive that he includes you with Thomas and the others who saw him in person. He welcomes you into this community. You don't have to crank up your faith to stop doubting. You can come to him with all your questions and doubts and just receive. Receive him. Receive the Jesus who offers himself to you. Second, read. These things are written so that you can read them, so that you may believe. Read the testimonies of those who knew Jesus then and throughout history. Read books that ground you and edify you and inspire you. It might be apologetics books that help you know why you believe, or missionary biography, or historical fiction, or memoir. Something that struck me in my dissertation research is that when asked to name their most life-changing books, no two participants named the same book. What's transformative for one might not be transformative for another. No books for everyone, but every book is for someone, and all of us can read something that helps draw us nearer to Jesus. And third, remain. Thomas remained in the community and in faith. Remain in the vine. Don't give up. Don't give up meeting together. Even if there are days or seasons that you're not sure you believe anymore, remain in the community and let the community believe on your behalf. Something that helped me get through the past 15 years or so were our church's Saturday morning men's breakfast. Every month we'd get together at the Richardson's or the Stewart's over breakfast and coffee, and we'd share our struggles and our doubts, our pains, our hopes. We didn't have all the answers, but we supported each other in community and prayed each other through. And just this year, in the past few months, this winter and spring, Ellen and I have been in a new small group, and we weren't really sure at first if we wanted to be in a small group again. Did we really have time and space for it? But it's been so good. <laughs> it's so rich to be with friends, old and new, to share life together, again, in person, in the gathering. We, we help each other believe. Uh, and in the remaining, we experience Jesus. Tradition has it 
that the Apostle Thomas lived out the rest of his life as a missionary preacher. He traveled as far as India and founded churches in Kerala in South India, and he's now the patron saint of India. And there are churches and denominations known as the Mar Toma churches, St. Thomas Christians. And one of my friends, Jason, is a vice president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He is oversees all of our campus field ministry, and he's Indian. And his family is part of these Indian Martoma churches. And his family's lineage goes back to St. Thomas because it's not just the name of his church. It's also his family name. His name is Jason Thomas. And for his family, Thomas's name doesn't mean doubt. Thomas is a name of belief and faith on the other side of disillusionment. My Lord and my God. Thomas believed, so can we. So this Easter season, be like Thomas. Doubting and questioning, that's okay. But also receive and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, have life in his name. Amen.